Good evening, listeners, or good early morning, depending uh, what time you're going to listen to this. I just wanted to start with a few things before I dive into the to today's topics. First, I'd like to give a thank you to an organization called Feedspot Blogs. They have selected Justice Tech Pro's podcast as being one of the top 30 criminal justice podcasts on the web. So it's greatly appreciated. It tells me that the content I'm putting out is one that listeners do want to hear and is gaining some traction. And on that exact note, we broke um, 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. We've also been gaining uh, subscribers and downloads on all the various platforms. So it's making the rounds. People are listening. And hopefully what I set out to do as far as just enlightening individuals and having the general public understand what takes place behind the scenes scenes is uh, picking up and and possibly opening up a few minds and letting people understand a different perspective on various issues as it relates to the criminal justice system defendants the defense team families things of that nature everything I try to talk about One item that I found extremely interesting, and it relates directly pretty much to a topic I touched on in past episodes where where it is concerned, where transcripts are concerned, and the matching audio to those transcripts that are often given by the prosecution team, how they will state certain words are being said on a transcript, and the jury will read along as the audio's being played. And I brought up my concern on how, if they're inaccurate, it could do a lot of damage. And I know the judge shall give, he or she will give instructions to the jury that basically say the transcript is only to be used as a vehicle or a tool, and the audio is what counts. Now I see a problem with, I saw a problem with that, and after witnessing what I witnessed, I I believe it's an even deeper issue and deeper problem, and I'll explain in depth on that. But I always felt that reading along with something, you're going to align with whatever you're reading and correspond that to the audio. So even if it's inaccurate, what you read will take precedent and will almost trick your brain or fool your brain into believing what you're reading is what you're hearing. Now, with that said, there's a video making the rounds on the internet on various social media outlets, uh, I believe TikTok and Instagram, uh, it's even on YouTube. And in this clip, they do somewhat of an experiment, and I'm going to leave the link to an article on that very topic. They do somewhat of a, in the uh, description, so you'll see it in the YouTube description or the podcast description, you could click on the link and, and view an article in depth on what I'm going to address. The the, uh, content of the experiment, I guess I would call it, they play an audio clip. And along with the audio clip, they put up two different words. They put up one word where it says green needle, and the other word says brainstorm. They have you listen. They'll play an audio excerpt, and you'll listen to the... The, the words being spoken. Now, if you're reading along and you read the word brainstorm while you're playing the audio, 
you'll hear the word brainstorm and vice versa with the exact same audio now you'll then hear it again and you'll read the word green needle and then you'll hear that word as you read along so to simplify it what it does is as the audio is playing whatever word you're reading on the screen is the word that your brain hears so once I heard that, it really almost gave me a flashback to a trial I was part of where there were certain words, certain names and transcripts that were inaccurate, certain statements that were inaccurate, and the defense had to fight that. Sometimes we won, sometimes we didn't. And this kind of proves the danger on that. If the brain is trained to hear what it is reading, one would think that's a major problem and if what the judge suggests that it's only a tool or a vehicle, shouldn't they give both versions of the transcript to the jury as they're listening to the audio? Therefore, as they're reading along, they could look at both versions where there is a debate on what the defense is saying is being stated and what the prosecution is being stated is saying what is being stated. This way the jury could hear both parts of that and both teams version as opposed to only one version because if they don't see it and read the other the other passage their brain will tell them it's stating what they're reading and if it's inaccurate which could be detrimental depending on the conversation and depending on the context that's a major major issue and it's being allowed in courts daily and when you when you see this experiment you're really going to understand what I'm trying to convey here you're going to understand how words can be completely different I mean here you have green needle and here you have brainstorm they don't even really sound like one another and yet during the experiment when you read along and you focus on one or the other word that is the word in which you're hearing so the same truth holds accurate where it relates to a courtroom. They're playing an audio against the defendant normally, and the prosecution wants the jury to read along based on their transcript and based on their definitions and on their conclusions as to what is being said in the conversation. So now if they're picking and choosing words that could impact the guilt of a client, of a defendant. And you don't have the opportunity to rebut that because the prosecution's transcript is the one that's being read. How do you contest that and how do you undo the damage that was done to the jury? Sure, you could possibly argue, which most of the time will be objected to and you'll lose, where you could you know, try to intervene and say that's not what that with that audio stated, and then there'll be, you know, probably a sidebar and a little back and forth. But the damage is already done. The, the jury's going to believe they heard whatever was written on that transcript provided by the prosecution. Now, the way it plays out prior to the, to the day of them playing the audios and the transcripts, the defense team will have the opportunity to listen and to object to the judge directly. But here's the problem with that. If you don't win, which happens more often than not, 
and the judge sides with the prosecution and they give the, pro they give the jury the prosecution's transcript, that's a big problem. That's a big shift in the case. Um, again, if, it, if it's relating to something serious and, for example, one of the things we were affected with, the prosecution was trying to say that a statement in the audio was referring to one of the, one of the defendants. When the defense team heard it, it clearly wasn't. Now, we fought it. We tried to bring it up. The, the prosecution didn't agree with us. They wanted to stick the, to their transcript until what they determined was being said on the audio. And they won. The judge let them use their transcript. Now, if it's blatantly obvious, and it's way too hard for them to oppose it, then they will agree and they will change and they will update the transcript before they're being played. But if it's something which I've noticed that is a little vague, however, you, your team, the defense team, hears one thing and the prosecution team hears another thing, unfortunately, the judge will sometimes, depending on the judge, will allow the prosecution to go with their, with their final transcript. And that is another tool that they're using to lead a case down a road that they want to have predetermined to obtain the verdict they wish to get. And I, again, that's something I really don't know how you overcome. And it goes to show how the judge really controls that. One would think if you have one side that's adamant that the transcript is wrong and the other side that's adamant it's wrong, there would be some kind of hearing before that's played to bring in a professional, to bring in an expert. And our side actually had an expert listen to it and they determined they, they sided with the context in which the defense team had concluded as opposed to what the prosecution did. But even still, we weren't allowed to, to play weren't allowed to give our transcript. They only were uh, given the um, government's transcript. And as I was hearing this demonstration online, it just really drove the point home to me when you could hear two totally different things based on the words you're reading up on a screen or on your phone or wherever you're reading them or on a piece of paper. You could change an entire... Where something is vague, especially, you could change an entire audio. You could change the purpose of the audio. You could change who they're referring to in the audio. When you have an unclear or muffled sample. And that muffled sample that's unclear could hurt the, defense, the defense's case tremendously. And this demonstration is going to show you that. As I said, you know, when you're done with the... Um, when you're done with the podcast, I would suggest clicking on that link and just listen to it for yourself and you'll understand exactly what I'm trying to to explain. When you see it and when you hear it, it really drives the point home and it really is a bit shocking because you're focused on a word and you hear it clear as day when you're reading it and then you'll read the other word and you'll hear that word clear as day and here you have the exact same audio, two different words and yet you hear them clear as day when you're reading them. That could shift an entire dynamic of a conversation. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on and how that could change things. I think everybody really grabs, grasps the point without, without me beating a dead horse. I think you, you could understand 
you could make up any scenario you want in your head, you know, all of the different examples of how that could hurt one's case if the transcript is inaccurate to the audio or if the transcript is unclear and yet the prosecution defines what they want it to be and that's how it's read and that's what the jury believes it to be. It could really do significant, have a significant impact. And if you if there's several of them that they keep reading and, and that keeps going down the same path, obviously like anything else, it's like a house of cards. They just keep stacking and stacking until it all just collapses and not in your favor as the defense team. So I, w- I wanted to just address that a little bit and I wanted to put the link on the description because I'd really like for the listeners to take the time to view that because I I feel once you hear that and read that, the public will get a great understanding of the kind of negative impact that will have on a case. And in my head, I was trying to think how a defense attorney would be able to argue an inaccurate transcript outside of prior trying to put in a motion, trying to argue it that way, and then if you lose, I guess it depends on the leeway you're given in, given on the rebuttal to that. You know, w- would a lawyer be allowed to play this example? It would be great if, you know, if I was an attorney, I would look to actually play this example. I would look to play the one I'm talking to you about with the green needle and the brainstorm just to have the jury understand that. And it would even make sense to probably bring in an audio expert, someone who understands the dynamic of it and could explain how the brain hears what it reads. I believe that would be... I I did a whole episode on the importance of experts. And as I was going through this, I believe this is another expert that would be vital to a case if you have a lot of audio working against your client that is inaccurate or that is unclear and is somewhat up in the air as to what is being said. I believe an, an audio expert, you get a forensic expert who can explain the difference that could happen based on what is read versus what is heard. And there's there's different classes of experts who could handle that. There's even um, someone who could just focus on the brain part of it. And expand a little bit. Now, you don't want to get too deep because the average person, including myself, sometimes you get bored if it's too scientific and things that you just you zone out. So you'd want to get somebody who could keep an expert who could keep the jury engaged and educate them and have them understand in a broken down, simplistic way why that occurs, why the brain causes that, that issue. I believe that would help a defense team tremendously to have that as a as an as a witness on their side perhaps when it's their turn to do a defense to to mount their defense uh, case they could call uh, that type of expert revisit those specific transcripts and talk about the dangers of not having an accurate transcript and if there is one that is up for Debate, and if there is one that is not clear, and the defense is saying one thing and the prosecution is saying another, that the jury needs to understand that the transcript they have in front of them is not one that everybody that both parties agreed upon. 
So if, for example, let's say that there was a transcript that sticks in the jury's head, and if you try to address that during your defense case, you could possibly put that fire out where when they are deliberating, they'll remember that expert, they'll remember that example and that demonstration where two different words were read and your brain heard those two different words independently based on the audio being played. As I hear these things and see these things, I always try to play out in my head how to counteract those things. And that's really the only way I could see. If you lose the motion, if, you, if the judge won't allow you to give your version of the transcript, I, I would guess that the only way, and then you're not allowed to even argue the transcript as it's being played in court, I guess the only way to try to counteract that and to refute it when it's your time would be on the defense's case. And to do that, you would have to take it very seriously and you would have to call an expert. I believe the expert would eliminate the, you know, he said, she said aspect of it. If you have somebody up there, even if they're not telling you what the transcript's saying, but if they could explain to the jurors that they can't put too too much weight into an unclear audio, and they can't put too much weight into the tr- into the actual words they're reading, based on this biological aspect of it and how the brain reacts, and based on that, it may swing things to a more favorable decision, and and a level of uncertainty, and create that reasonable doubt that you're supposed to get when uh, a jury is deliberating. So that that would be, I guess that would be my suggestion on how a defense team would tackle that. You would want to bring in, on on closing, on the, before closing, excuse me, you would want to bring that in on the defense's case. When it's the defense's turn to put on their case, you would want to address that. You can't, too many times I've seen issues left alone and then they don't get addressed again. And even though the defense fought for it and lost, they almost give up on it because they tried to fight and they couldn't do anything about it. So I believe getting a second bite at the apple by revisiting it on the defense's case when they're presenting would be the only way to somewhat undo some of the damage that was done. It's impossible to undo it all because the jury heard that and I'm sure it made a big impact and they made a mental note of it. But if you do bring it up again and you do address it and you bring in somebody who knows whose area of expertise is in that specific field where it relates to audio and visual and how it plays out and how it impacts what you're hearing, how a visual aid could impact what you're taking in and what you're listening to. I believe that would be the only way of fighting that and offering a defense to something that did harm your case and did harm the defendant. Now, the other thing that was on my mind that was fresh, it actually played out today in the newspaper. I was reading an article about an informant who was on one of these podcasts, and apparently he he um, broke his supervised release conditions because he was associating with uh, known felons by being on the podcast. It was one of the podcasts that these informants host. And I guess he didn't get permission, but he said he he got permission. So now he's dealing with whatever ramifications he has to deal with as a result of that. And what's interesting to me, 
that a lot of us on the defense already know, but I believe now the public will get a little insight. A lot of these informants, you know, it's very, it's easy for us on the defense to say they're lying when we know they're lying and we could cite how they're lying. But now you're seeing an informant who apparently lied to the probation officer that he wasn't, uh, I think it had to do with the dates that he didn't get permission prior. And he lied again saying he did get permission. And my point with that without going into detail because I, I really couldn't care. But my point with that is it's just the overall theme of the lying. And what bugs me about that is now you can see they want to say that everything they say during trial is the truth, but yet after even trial plays out, they're still lying. Whether they're lying to a judge, whether they're lying to the probation officer, whether they're lying on social media, they're, they're being confronted with lies after the fact. After they supposedly turned over this new leaf, uh, they're, they're truth seekers, they're truth tellers, but now when somebody takes notice, additional lies are coming to fruition. And it just goes to show the old saying, once a liar, always a liar. So what bothers me about that is when were they telling the truth? So they were telling the truth when it fit the narrative the government wanted to get out or the prosecution wanted to get get out. Then they were telling the truth. Now they're lying, but they had a couple truths, but they weren't lying. I mean, it gets so confusing and exhausting. Once somebody lies, shouldn't that set the tone? Shouldn't that show that? Most of what they're saying and most of what they're speaking is a lie, and they they continue to lie, and it's all about self-preservation. If you notice, every time a lie occurs, it's to benefit themselves, whether it's to avoid being violated for supervised release, whether it's to avoid doing jail time for crimes they committed, avoid being accountable for any sins they may have acted upon and they have done themselves, it's always self-serving. And I believe examples like that could be useful for the defense. I think a defense attorney should catalog these examples. When an informant does continue to lie, when they break supervised release, when they show they did not change their ways, they're still doing the same thing, they're, they're arrogant on social media, they're putting things out there, they're bragging about money on social media, they're bragging about their past. They're, when confronted with it and asked if they got permission or they didn't get permission, they're lying, they continue to go on. It's more of a snowball effect. And I believe by cataloging that and showing these examples when you're faced with an informant who you know is lying, it should have a tremendous impact on the jury. And it should show the jury, well, wait a minute. If this guy's doing it, if this guy's doing it, if this guy's doing it, how do I know that the informant in front of me isn't doing it? It'll cast a little bit of doubt, which is the ultimate objective. You want to show that reasonable doubt. And if you start showing the motives, when you have informants talking about book deals and, and uh, movie deals or whatever else they're talking about, and podcasts, and there's a career, a career that is generated and based upon their quote-unquote past life. There's a lot of motive there. And if you show the motive in conjunction with the lies that continue to be told, that paints a serious picture in the eyes of the general public and in, in the eyes of the citizen on the jury.
and within that jury pool. So when they're deliberating, they could possibly say, well, whoever it is could say, well, guys, gals, look at this guy. Look at this other guy on this other case. He was supposedly telling the truth the whole time, but then after the case ended, look at all these things he did. He got, you know, he got violated uh, on supervised release. He couldn't stick to those terms, and then he lied, and then he tried to cover that up. You know, they could go on and on. They could have a, a little bit of a dialogue on that, and it could make it could make the dialogue and the conversation within that jury deliberation room one that is enlightening and one that is common filled with common sense and filled with human nature and how things play out it'll pull down the veil that the government tries to put on a lot of these informants that now they're totally reformed everything they're saying is gospel they don't tell any lies anymore they used to tell lies they're not telling lies now and then later on they tell lies again if you expose that and you build on that it could help the defense team And it all goes back to what I say as far as building a database of all these different things that play out. All these different podcasts, social media sites. A defense team needs to put that all together. They need to hang on to that. Keep every excerpt, keep keep every clip, every post. Whatever you have, you want to keep that and hold on to that. Because you never know when you're going to need it. And you never know when it could help your client. It could help the defendant. You could give specific examples of how what you're saying when you're trying to tell the jury not to give so much weight and to what this informant is, is testifying to. And you could show examples as to why you're saying that. That'll have, that'll definitely give them something to think about. Because obviously before that, they're just going to say, well, of course you're saying that. You're the, de- you're the defense team. You want us to think he's lying. Well, show why he's lying. Show past habits of, of other informants in similar situations. So show the trend. Show what takes place. Show how it all plays out because it's not unique how it all plays out. The goal at the end is pretty much the same. Whether it's book deals, whether it's movie deals, whether it's podcasts, whether it's social media, whatever it is, whether it's reality shows, whatever it may be, the objective's the same, to build a career based on this, avoid jail, and to get a little bit of fame, get some money, all based on past actions, not be held accountable, and to earn a living based on their misdeeds. So it's very important to pay attention to those things and really have them play out and really understand how many lies are told when there's lies told at the beginning, lies told during, lies told after. It's very important to track that and to lay that out, map it out for the jury. Give them a clear path to look at. Explain how these things take place. Another topic I wanted to touch on is Again, how within the system, once you're in the system, I know last time I spoke about the BOP and designation and how they could pretty much put you anywhere. Uh, another item that's come up that I've seen how they handle, which is disturbing to say the least, is with this whole COVID thing going on. What happens is before they, they move you now, when you're in the BOP system and before they designate you, 
what they do is they put you in a quarantine because of COVID. Everybody has to go into a quarantine for either 14 or 21 days, and you have to wait there and make sure you don't test positive for COVID before they transport you to wherever your final designation is. Now, unfortunately, what played out recently was the defendant had a legal call. While they were in quarantine, they had a legal call scheduled with the legal team to discuss upcoming appeal and upcoming issues. So they're in quarantine. They have the call scheduled. The day for the call comes and goes. As a matter of fact, scratch that. Let me make make one uh, important notation. Ten minutes before the call was supposed to take place, the BOP called and said to the attorneys, will you be available in ten minutes? We're going to have your client, and he's going to call. Yes, everybody was available. The team was ready to have the call. Ten minutes comes and goes. No call from the BOP. Uh, no response. Waiting and waiting. The call never happens. So obviously the defense team makes calls, tries to call the the facility, tries to find out what's going on. You do not get any clear-cut answers. What you get told is somebody within the quarantine unit tested positive for covid Now, they won't tell you if your client tested positive. They'll just tell you somebody did. They're in quarantine, and there's no legal calls. They're they're suspended. They don't give you how long they're suspended. They don't give you any details. Now, the defendant can't call you, so he can't call his family members, can't call the attorney. You don't know what's going on. So now think of that as it relates to the family. If you don't want to think about how it relates to the defendant, the frustration, who knows what they're dealing with, look at the family side of it. Even look at the legal team side of it. They're completely left in the dark. They're not getting any answers one way or the other. They don't know if their client's okay. They don't know if if their client has COVID. They don't know if it's just somebody in the unit that has COVID that caused this. All these unknown answers and you cannot get a clear, concise response as to what's taking place. You call the different departments. You get the runaround. You get all... Vague answers, vague directions, nothing to tell you. The bottom line is you're not getting any information. Now, how is that? I hate to use the word fair because I know the old saying, life isn't fair. But when you're in, when you're in a, a system like that, you're already in there. You're doing your time. You're going through the motions. Why bring that added stress, that added anxiety to the family? Why leave them in the dark? Why not at least tell them what's going on? Let them know if their loved one is okay. Let them know what is taking place. Let them know if they're getting treatment, if they did test positive, especially now with everything going on. And on top of that, how much does this show that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing in those situations? They call 10 minutes before to say they were going to have the legal call, and then they just disappear. So obviously, if they're in quarantine, this was already known. I doubt within 10 minutes it was just figured out that somebody had COVID within those 10 minutes. So one department doesn't know what another department is doing. They're scheduling calls, even though we found out later that all calls are suspended when something like this happens. And you're just left in the dark. You have to wait each day hoping to get some kind of answer, hoping to hear from the defendant, hopefully the the. the, the defense team hears from them, hopefully the family members hear from them, and you're just waiting and waiting. 
And it's really hard to wrap your head around that. It goes to show the lack of the lack of response. I don't even want to say the lack of caring because I know they don't care, but just the lack of professionalism. The lack of just making sure everybody's on the same page. People who need to know what's going on know, even if you don't want to tell the family for whatever reason. Let the legal team know what's going on. Instead, they spend all day emailing, trying to get somebody on the phone to no avail. And it's extremely frustrating for everybody outside. I can't imagine how frustrating it is for the person on the inside. They're aware that their family's concerned. They're aware that the attorneys don't know what's happening. They're aware that they had a call and now they don't have a call. And there's nothing they could do about it. You just got to sit there and wait. You got to wait for whoever's in charge at that facility to decide to bless the family or bless the attorneys by giving them an update. And nothing gets done about those things. There's nobody to step in and say, this is wrong. You could write the judge. The judge will say, well, the facility has to handle it on their level. They put it right back on the facility's part. And if the judge doesn't order anything, the the jail is, is not going to do anything about that. They're just going to keep moving along. And again, it just goes to show the power and the lack of human rights one has once they're sweeped into the system. And to think on top of it when you're dealing with innocent people, when you're dealing with people who, who didn't commit the acts they were charged with and got found guilty anyway, now they're being subjected to all these things on top of being innocent. That shouldn't happen regardless. Somebody's doing their time, innocent, guilty, whatever. It shouldn't happen regardless. They're doing their time. They're in the system. They understand what's going on. These type of things are so preventable. It's a five-second phone call. It's finding out the details. It's giving the legal team a heads up. Again, as I said, if you don't want to notify the family, fine. And then the legal team will will fill the family in. But just giving a five-minute call, just a heads up of what is going on. I don't see how that is so hard to execute. I don't understand how that's such a difficult request. There's plenty of employees there. There's plenty of individuals there who can answer questions. Just find out what is taking place. And this is just one example I'm using now based on the COVID situation. But this happens time and again. There'll be a... um, a riot or something, an incident at a jail and they go into lockdown where everybody's locked in their cells and you don't hear from somebody. You may not hear from your your uh, friend or your family or your client for days on end. And you try to call and you don't get any answers. And when you think about it, what is the possible rationale behind that? Why not, if somebody calls and asks what's going on, why not simply say they're on lockdown now, there's going to be no calls for Two days, three days, give a time limit. So people aren't just waiting every day, worried to see what went on. If if the incident involved uh, the person they're inquiring about. It's very top secret in the sense that it doesn't need to be. You could keep things. I understand the the reason. I know the security reasoning to, to not obviously divulge every detail of what's going on. I, I recognize that and I understand that, but there's a way they could put things just to explain time frame, explain when they will hear from the person or they won't hear from the person. There's a way to communicate that rather than just having no answers, being vague, 
and basically saying, there's nothing you could do about it. This is how it's going. Deal with it. And I believe that's the most frustrating part because these are very simple, simple items to be followed up on and to be answered and to be resolved. A, a lot of this could be resolved where it doesn't cause so much stress, doesn't cause anxiety, doesn't cause, cause hardship. It could be addressed, it could be handled in a more professional manner. It doesn't have to be compassionate. It doesn't have to... Just professional. That's all. Give the facts that you can give without going into any details that could somehow jeopardize security. Inform those who need to be informed of what's going on. Just a little bit of communication. Especially nowadays with email. You don't even got to get on the phone. You could just email the person. How quick does that take? Have one person designated at each facility. Two people at each facility. Just handling that, just notifying those who inquire. If a f- family member or a friend or an attorney inquires what's going on with their client or their um, significant other or their son or their daughter or their husband, whatever it may be, what does it take to send a two-second email back giving a status update, not leaving them in the dark? And I do do believe a lot of it has to do with mind games. I do believe a lot of it has to do with spite work. And a lot of it's just to make things harder. Just to make it harder on the family, make it harder on the inmate. Just all around make a situation harder that really doesn't need to be. You don't need to add that kinds of that kind of stress and that kind of volatility to the situation. I, I think these things are important to talk about. And dive into because I, I feel the majority of people don't understand how it works and what takes place when you're dealing with this type of situation, when you're dealing with somebody who may be involved, unfortunately, in the justice system and going through the motions, involved in being behind bars. I don't I don't believe people understand all of these different obstacles that everyone involved in that person's life is up against. And even when you're trying to fight for them, the additional obstacles that keep coming. It's almost like, you know, fires that keep arising that you have to constantly put out. And I I try to, I try to talk to the listeners to make them understand and to see that side of things and to comprehend what goes on. Just to give a little insight. I think, I think it helps. I think it gives some legitimate issues to think about. I believe it opens a bit of a door as to how these things work and how they're really not right, regardless whether you agree with something, whether you think somebody's guilty, whether you think somebody's innocent. In this country, we're supposed to believe in certain freedoms and certain liberties and certain ways of of conduct. And when things are done out of spite, when things are done out of control, when things are done because there's a vendetta or an agenda, any any rational thinking person would take offense to that. The system's put in place for a specific reason. There's rules, there's regulations, there's guidelines. We all understand that. And they should be followed. They should be followed within that path, not deviate from that not work outside of that, not have special conditions for certain individuals. 
because it could ha- if it could happen to one person, it can happen to anybody. And the listeners, I think, have a grasp on that, and they understand that, and they see it's a problem. And I'm sure there's many people who don't see it's a problem. There's a lot of ignorant individuals out there who believe one way, and they believe as long as it doesn't affect them, it doesn't matter. And that's fine. They can continue being ignorant. They can continue being hard-headed. There's no changing that type of person. And I say it all the time. I'm hoping those type of people don't listen to the show. All I want are open-minded people. I don't want anybody to agree with me. If they do, that's great. You know, I appreciate it. That's awesome. But all I really want is someone who's open-minded. Somebody who just understands the full picture before they make their own personal conclusion. Somebody who listens to all these different tidbits, all these different factors, all these different sources of information, and uses all of that to then make an educated decision and an educated determination. Not an ignorant one based on... It almost reminds me like a child when they stick their fingers in their ear, they don't want to hear it, and they're just blabbing because they don't want to hear anything. Whether you agree or not with things, you want to be well-versed. You want to understand all the different elements of something, regardless of the topic. You just want to understand every side. And then you make your own personal opinion, you form it, based on those different things, based on what you may align with, based on what you understand, what you could relate to. That's fine, but when you close it out and you don't want to hear it and you disregard it simply based on because you don't agree with it, but you don't have a valid reason, that's ignorance. You have to understand, there's plenty of times where I may go into a situation feeling very strongly about something and I talk to somebody who may be a little more well-versed than I am, a little more experienced on that specific topic and they bring to my attention things I wasn't aware of and I wasn't thinking about and it could alter my opinion and my perspective and there's nothing wrong in that there's nothing wrong in analyzing a situation changing your opinion changing your perspective because you may have now had additional information brought to light that you weren't previously aware of That's the only way to improve on something. That's the only way to make a rational choice, to make a solid determination without having any regrets because you have the full picture. The last thing I think anybody would want is making making a strong or forming a strong opinion on a serious topic without having all the facts and without having all the sides. You You don't want to regret that afterwards. You don't want to say to yourself, well, I wish I knew that. You know, I would have thought a little differently about it. It's very important. And I try to give insight into all those different things that people may not think about. Where it relates to informants, where it relates to how the system works. Just things that people should keep in back of their mind that are wrong and and hopefully they change. As this spotlight lately on the justice system is happening, hopefully some of these things change. A final issue I wanted to highlight that was brought to my attention today, and it relates to the article I was talking about, about this informant who is now apparently in uh, dealing with a judge about possible violation. Someone was listening to the hearing, and they reached out to me uh, because the hearing was 
via teleconference. So the general public could call in. They do that with pretty much any hearing nowadays, even the past sentencing hearing I was personally a part of. They, they put the call-in number on PACER so anybody could call in and listen, whether it's the media, whether it's uh, the public, anybody could call in and listen. So I was informed that during this discussion, apparently one of the, an, an individual who's a reporter, uh, and it's actually the same reporter who did a story on my father a while back, which I gave great um, commendation to. and is a phenomenal story. It really uncovered the truth of the case and really dove in deep. And then an e-book was formed and the audio book, which is all available. And I'll talk about it again for the new listeners. If you go to guiltfortheguiltless.com, you'll see it. And the author is uh, Lisa Babick. She's an investigative journalist. So it was brought to my attention that apparently during this proceeding today, this Lisa Babick, I guess, submitted some information that had to do with this informant. With that said, apparently the informant tried making a statement that this individual, this reporter, now we're talking about an independent reporter who wrote a positive, who writes several positive stories, and it's not so much favoring one side or another, it's just telling the truth. So this reporter, I guess, gave some information as it related to this this case, and the informant made a comment that this reporter is an associate. Now, when I heard that, I actually started cracking up because now is that the level that it goes to? So if somebody, so if a reporter writes fair stories, stories that aren't biased, stories that just tell the facts on both sides, tell what took place, cites it with court documents, cites it, and may have an opinion where they say, well, that's not fair. Things are not fair. So now because a reporter takes that stance, they're supposedly an associate he tried, I believe, saying he was an associate of organized crime. How ridiculous is that? And I, and I laughed to myself because in my head, I, I had an image of how they put up all those pictures during these organized crime trials. I pictured now the reporter's face as an associate on one of those trees that they build. They build that hierarchy tree. Where does the uh, investigative journalist go? Do they go off to the side? Where do they go on this tree now that they're an associate? And how ridiculous is that when you think about it? You get a reporter who is trying to write fair articles, trying to write things based on facts, based on information that's available on PACER, public information, based on court minutes, and the reporter comes to their own conclusion where they feel things took place that weren't fair, where a person did not get a fair trial, and they write articles based on things that aren't fair, things that take place, and they're called an associate now? That's a label you want to give a legitimate investigative reporter? It's a mockery. It's ridiculous. But it's very dangerous when they do things like that. And that's what's so frustrating. They're allowed to make these statements, these derogatory statements. They try to paint somebody in a poor light. They try to give them that stigma. So now whenever a person puts out an article, they put out something positive, that's all. That's what the general public's going to do. They're going to brush it off and go, oh yeah, they're, they're an associate. So now investigative journalists are associates. So what does that mean? All the journalists who, who write articles that are in favor of the government, are they associates of the government? Is that what that means? 
Could the defense team then do a chart with the government associates and list all the reporters, which would be about 95% of them? Because most of those articles are usually in favor of the uh, prosecution of the government. It's just ridiculous, no matter how you look at it. And I find that I found that totally absurd. And I found it totally moronic to even go down that route, to even try to accuse somebody of that. Simply because they're doing their job, they're investigating things. They have no ties to anybody. They don't know anybody. They're just doing their stories. They find a story. They find an injustice. They find something they're not crazy about. They write about it. They explore about it. And now they want to they want to be slandered in that manner to make it a bad thing. And the public needs to see that these terms, you know, they get thrown around left and right. And they have an impact. They have an impact. They're trying to take away somebody's professional title or somebody's what they've worked hard to achieve. By you, these crazy term, these crazy terms, and I'm looking forward to seeing the minutes because I want to see exactly how it was said. But when I heard that, I shouldn't even say I was in shock because I should expect these things by now. But it just goes to show what gets put out there. If there are articles that explain unjust acts that are taking place, even if it's against somebody who supposedly has some kind of organized crime label. If there's any article in favor of that individual, right away, there's something, you know, something that is sinister about it. Something that there's some kind of maneuvering going on, some kind of agenda. When it's a totally legitimate account, a totally legitimate piece, a transparent piece with citations, with backup, with supportive documentation, and they want to try to to knock it down by painting it with a dark tone and some kind of cloak and dagger type title. Very frustrating. It really is. And you see it play out time and time again. And when I heard that today, it just really, I said to myself, here we go again. Here we go again. Somebody writes positive articles, and now they're going to try to say that to discredit it. But listen... The work speaks for itself with this with this uh, reporter. What they put out speaks for itself. What they support it with speaks for itself. So people could read that and understand. I just hope they realize when these ridiculous titles and these ridiculous stigmas get thrown around, that's all they are is absurd. That's all it is. And that's really all I have for today. Until next time. And actually, next time's our 50th episode. And again, I want to thank all the subscribers. Hopefully next stop, we're at 20,000 one day. And it's been about a year, a little over a year I've been doing this. I'm very happy with the results. I'm very happy with the feedback. And I appreciate everybody for tuning in.